replaced it, I promise. It's not the same one as last week. All right, there we go. Thank you. Um, we're halfway through the book of Nehemiah. I want to take a moment to review from last week. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, 52 days. So we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, and God called Nehemiah to build the wall of, around Jerusalem, rebuild it after the Babylonian exile, and they got it built. So what do we do now? The book's only halfway done. What's the rest of it about? Well, the, today I want to sort of share with you a chart that sort of shows the two halves of this book. A lot of people think about the book of Nehemiah, and you only think about him rebuilding the wall. Well, in, in Nehemiah 1 through 6, he rebuilt the wall, but in Nehemiah 7 through 13, he rebuilds the community. And so now he wants to rebuild the people within the wall. Uh, there was a phrase that we heard at the beginning of the first half, what God has put in my heart. God put in his heart, uh, Nehemiah's heart, to rebuild the wall. Well, now, as we begin this second half of the book, we see that same key phrase again, and God put it in my heart to assemble the people. And so the same phrase appears there that God has put it in Nehemiah's heart now to assemble the people together. So the key word in the first half of the book is work, and the key word in the second half of the book is assemble. Just uh, now God is calling Nehemiah to assemble the people or gather the people. The same Hebrew word will be translated both ways, assemble or gather, and that's the word that we're going to look for in this second half of the book. So to sum it up, Nehemiah 1 through 6, God wants me to invest my life in his work. God has a work for you to do. And as he put it on Nehemiah's heart, what he wanted Nehemiah to do, he puts in our heart the assignments and the, the mission that he has for us, and you'll find fulfillment when you follow God's work. Well, now the second part of the book is, what does God want me to do with my life? He wants me to center my life in a community of worship. And so we saw in the first half what God wants you to do. Now here's what God wants you to be. Now Nehemiah is seeking to rebuild the people's relationships with God. In Nehemiah 7 is a genealogy of the exiles who returned. There were 42,000 of them who returned. But most of them lived out in the outlying areas. And so the city's largely empty. The wall's been rebuilt now. And so now Nehemiah is concentrating on community life to rebuild that fellowship, that assembly, that community. And what we're going to learn here is that part of God's purpose for you, central part of his purpose for you, is that you live your life in a community of faith, what we would call a church in the New Testament, and that you assemble there, that you gather there so that you can grow. And so the next three chapters of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see three different things that Nehemiah gathered the people together to do. These are three keys to revival. He's trying to revive the spiritual life of this community. If we want to see revival in our nation or revival in our individual lives, these next three weeks that we're going to be looking at the next three chapters, 
are the three keys. And I'm praying we might experience renewal and revival. One of the prayers of my life has been that God will allow me to see revival one more time in my lifetime. And I believe America is ripe for that. Well, these are the, the keys to that kind of revival experience. So God's plan for you is that you assemble with his people. Now I want to talk to you about that in our church for just a moment. That's the overarching theme we're going to see in these next few weeks. Uh, God wants you to join a church. He doesn't intend for you to get to know Jesus and just live a solitary Christian life. He wants you to join a church. Then when you join a church, he wants you to gather. And In our disciple-making process of our church, there are three gathering points. Number one, most people come first to this, large group worship. That's where we lift our voices in praise and we hear God's word preached. That's the first gathering point. Then we want to pull you into a second gathering point. That's a connection group. Tim talked about it. Come an hour early next week and connect with people in your age group or life situation that you'll get to know people and share life together. Then there's a third gathering point in our discipleship strategy, and that's on Wednesday night when we do discipleship. Now, here's where we are. Our Sunday morning gatherings are growing greatly. Our Wednesday night is not growing, it's decreasing. And that concerns me because that's where we do our discipleship. I teach classes on how to pray, how to share your faith. I'm doing right now on how to study and understand the Bible. For, we have for kids Bible drill, Bible buddies, where they're going to learn the books of the Bible, learn Scripture, teen kid, student worship. This is the, the building. And so I want to encourage you to commit your life to community, that you're not just a part of something, but that you gather and you assemble. And I want to encourage you to take that next step wherever you are. If you're just coming to worship, I want you to take that next step and come to a connection group. And if you're there, I want to encourage you to come on Wednesday night. Todd would love you have be a part of this choir. And you can, that's a way you begin to serve, begin to get involved, begin to grow in discipleship. That's crucial in the strategy of our church, and I want to encourage you to take that next step. That's some of what we're going to see over these next three weeks is the importance of assembly. Every great revival that's ever happened in America has happened when people began to get together and pray and look at the Word of God. We have a prayer meeting at 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. We'd love for you to join us in praying. All we do is just share prayer and pray. We have CDP at 6.30. So I want to encourage you together. Now, the first of these three components that he gathered them to do, we're going to see today he gathers them to read and to center their life around and build their life on the Word of God, the Bible. The first component of, of revival and of the community life, what we center our church around. Is this book, the Word of God, the Bible? Today in Nehemiah 8, as it's read, these people are going to model three appropriate responses. I want you to think, are these responses a part of my response to the Bible, the Word of God? Let's look at them together. The first one is, hear the Word of God eagerly. Hear the Word of God eagerly. So it says in Nehemiah 8.1, all the people came together. So God had put it on Nehemiah's heart to call an assembly. And so here they all come together. Maybe 40,000, that's how many came back from the exile. Maybe by this time, the population has grown to 50 or 60,000. I don't know, because that had been some years before. So a huge gathering of tens of thousands of people. All the people 
came together as one in the square before the water gate. So in a big open plaza next to the water gate. And they told Ezra, so here's the first appearance of Ezra. He's, his is the book before Nehemiah. And he's already been here, uh, but now he's gone back and Nehemiah's come. Now Ezra's joining him. He's the, he's the preacher. He's the priest. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. So that would be a scroll that would have the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the book of the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was their Bible to this point. And he says, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So verse 2 says, on the first day of the seventh month, so this would correspond to October 8th, 444 B.C., the wall was finished October 2nd, 444 B.C., so only six days after they finished the wall, now they're building the community, and they assemble together. Uh, the Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So men, women, and children came, and he read it aloud. He read from these first five books of the Old Testament, from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate. They hadn't had this as a part of their community and they're rebuilding the community by going back and reading publicly the Word of God. In the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Is there any eagerness in your life? Uh, they, from daybreak to noon, they listened attentively because they're hungry for this. And they, they're eager to hear what God had said that they've neglected for so long and they're building the community up. And it says in verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So they built a big platform out in that square. And Ezra's standing up there. And it says beside him on his right stood six men and on his left were seven men. And we don't know who these were. We assume they were other priests along with Ezra who may have taken turns reading. Because if you read from daybreak to noon and you project your voice to 50,000 people, it takes a lot of energy and voice to do that. So I'm assuming Ezra read a while and then one of these others came to the podium and he began to read. And so they're listed there and it says, here's how it began. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book, wouldn't be a book like ours, it would mean unrolling a scroll, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Reverence for the word, they're like we would honor a judge who comes into the courtroom and we stand, or, or like we stand for the national anthem. When he opens the book, they stand up, and they stand there from Daybreak to noon, listening. You think you have to stand up for a couple of songs, and you think, when's Todd going to let us sit down? And Did you know some Eastern Orthodox churches, they stand for the whole service. They're built without pews. You just come in and you stand because they're following this model there. Well, that's probably why you're not Eastern Orthodox. I don't know. But uh, they stood there. They stood for the Word of God. And look at verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Do you hear the eagerness to hear the Word of God in all this? They assembled, even with their kids. They stood when it was read. When he opened the book and and said, this is the Word of God, praise the Lord, they stood up and said, amen, amen. Is there any eagerness like that in your life for the Bible? Is the Bible a part of your life? Are you eager to come to church and hear it read and preached? Is there any Bible reading in your life? Is the Bible a part of your daily life? Do you have a Bible that you have with you somewhere in your home by your nightstand or by your chair that you read? Parents, let me ask you, do your kids ever see you opening a Bible? Do they see you read? Uh, That's a valuable admonition for your kids, example for your kids. They'll understand that this is important to you and that you are, are reading this book. That's a great, just a great simple step that you can do that they, you read to them or they can see you reading the Bible. Do you hear the eagerness of these people? Is there any of that eagerness? I've shared with you before, I've only been in one revival, been in revival meetings, but only one revival that permeated the culture in my lifetime. One of the prayers of my heart is, I have asked God, would you let me live long enough to see revival in America one more time. I don't know if he'll grant that request, but that's one of the prayers of my heart. The revival I experienced was the Jesus movement when I was a a teenager in the 70s, and one of the marks of that is, is that kids in our high school carried their Bibles to school every day. They had a New Testament with them. They read it in study hall. There was an eagerness for the Word of God that was abnormal according to the normality of our times, and that's a mark of of revival. Is there any of that eagerness in this verse for the Bible in your life? I'd like for us to reenact part of this. You know, participatory learning is even better than auditory learning. So would you reenact it with me? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open the book. I'm going to play the part of Ezra. Open the book and praise the Lord. And when I do, would you stand up and lift your hands either this way or this way and say, Amen, Amen. Now, we're not going to enact that second part. There's not room for you to bow down. And I'm afraid some of you couldn't get back up if you bowed with your faces to the ground. But we can at least reenact that first part. Would you, would you do that? Are you, are you with me here? Would you do that? I'm going to open the book. I'm going to praise the Lord. And when I do, you stand up and say, Amen, Amen, and lift your hands to the Lord. This is the Word of God. May the Lord be praised. Amen. Amen. That's good. Thank you. You can be seated. May that kind of enthusiasm, yeah, yeah, may that enthusiasm characterize our response. They heard the Word eagerly. Now, the second response they modeled, they received the Word of God joyfully. And this is key, received the Word of God joyfully. In verse 7, it says the Levites, and it lists by name 13 Levites, and the Levites were like assistant priests. This was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and everybody in this tribe was set apart. The priests came from this tribe. They were the descendants of Aaron within this tribe, but all the Levites were like the helpers in the worship and all. So they're out among the crowd of thousands, and as the priests up on the platform are reading, they are interpreting and applying and helping the people understand what is being read out among them. They're sort of like Sunday school teachers or connection group leaders out there. So it says, verse 7, the Levites, and it lists them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear 
or breaking it up is a literal translation, and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Well, now, as they're doing this and they're explaining, now, this is what he's reading here from Deuteronomy, and this what this means. Do you understand this part here? I, what I envision is as the priest would read and then another priest would come, there would be a break in the reading. And during those breaks, then the Levites would get up among the crowd and say, Now, do you understand that section? Here's what it means. Here's how it applies to us. The response of the people was they began to weep. They began to cry. I, I think they were broken. And, and that's a good thing. But curiously here, Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people, Don't weep. And, and for a while, I, you know, I couldn't understand it. Isn't that a good thing? Why is he telling them don't weep? There's two reasons, I think. Number one, the, the first day of the seventh month is designated in the Old Testament as the first day of the feast month. It's called the Feast of Trumpets, a one-day feast. And it specifically says it's supposed to be a day of joy. And Nehemiah and Ezra wanted the people to do what was in the book, and so they wanted them not to weep. There would be a time for that later, as we'll see, but they wanted them to rejoice. And besides, God doesn't want you to stay in weeping. He wants you to be broken by your sin, but then what he really wants is that to be replaced by the joy of forgiveness. And so he's telling them, don't weep. Let me read it to you. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, that's the feast day, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's the most famous phrase in the book of Nehemiah, if you only knew Something about one verse in Nehemiah, you might know this phrase. We've already sung a song about that, and we'll have another one yet to come before we close. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What Nehemiah was saying is you need to rejoice because joy will give you strength. The word strength there, interesting Hebrew word that is most often translated in the Old Testament, fortress. Sometimes translated stronghold sometimes translated protection, a few times mountaintop, and a few times helmet. So the joy of the Lord will be your fortress, your protection. Here's the deal. You remember they had all these enemies around them, Sanballat and all this. They're going to get opposition, criticism. They're going to be tempted to be discouraged. And Nehemiah is saying you need to understand the, the truth of this book and rejoice in it because when you understand it and rejoice in it, that joy of the Lord will be your protection or your strength. And that's still true of us. We are to be people of joy and that will protect you. It will strengthen you. If, if, you are, if you tend toward discouragement, or even if you battle depression, then cultivating a sense of joy in the Lord will help protect you from those bouts of discouragement and depression. Because you can cultivate a sense of joy in the Lord, the joy of the Lord, that will enable you not to be overwhelmed by changing circumstances in your life. And that's what God Nehemiah wanted for these people. So the next verse says, 
the Levites calmed all the people, said, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then verse 12, Then all the people went to eat and drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So the response to this book is, you internalize the message of this book, and it gives you joy, and that joy will be your strength or protection from discouragement and despair. Let me show you a couple of places in the New Testament where that same command, that same theme is carried on. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now Paul's in prison when he writes this, and yet he is able to speak of transcending joy. And you can know that. Always, in all circumstances, rejoice in the Lord. You know, may, and he's, he says it again. We sang it a few moments ago. Here's where that song comes from. I'll say it again. Rejoice. I'll read to you what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And the next verse says, in all this you greatly rejoice. So here's the source of the joy that the book reveals. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus, you've been born again by the mercy of God and through the resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to heaven. You've got an inheritance laid up in heaven that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And until you get there, you are being shielded by God's power in this life. And he says, in this, you greatly rejoice. You see how when you get a hold of that, of who you are, your past is gone, you've got a new future, your life's secure, God's in control, you're going to heaven. When you've got that, you rejoice in the Lord and that joy of the Lord will be your strength. So, Here's the response to the word of the Lord. You internalize that so that it can give you joy, which will be your strength. Now, there's a third response from Nehemiah 8, and that is to obey the word of God promptly. These folks modeled a third appropriate response for us. Obey the word of God promptly. Verse 13, on the second day of the month. So, the day before, the first day, they had spent half a day from daybreak till noon just listening to the Word of God, and then they'd started to weep, and they said, no, it's a day of rejoicing. They went home and had a feast and celebrated and, and cemented themselves in their joy, but they heard some things when it was read that they needed to respond to. So the leaders got together the next day, on the second day, the heads of all families, along with priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of Moses, or during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in, in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country, and here's a quote from the Old Testament from Leviticus 23. 
Here's what they read. Go out into the hill country, bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So here's the deal. In Leviticus 23 and other places in Deuteronomy, one of the things they were reading was in the seventh month, beginning on the 15th day, they were supposed to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, here it was the seventh month, the second day, they were saying, hey, this is coming up, says we're supposed to do this. We better get ready to do it. The Feast of Tabernacles was a religious festival commanded in the Old Testament where for a week every year they would construct a temporary hut, like camping out, and put this on their patio or their flat rooftop or a courtyard, and they would move out into that and stay there for a week to remember the time they left Egypt and they did not have permanent homes and they, the God provided for them shelter throughout the desert until they got to the promised land. So it was time of thank you, God, for where you brought us, remembering the times we've come through, sort of camping out for a week. Some of you would like that, some of you would not, but that's what they did uh, for a week. Well, they read about this, and they said, hey, we ought to do this. It says to do it, we need to obey that. So, verse 16, the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their roofs, in the courtyards, in the court of the house of God, the square of the water gate, the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. And then they also read that on the last day of the uh, fast, in Deuteronomy uh, or not in the last day, on every seventh year, the Sabbath year, every seven Feast of Tabernacles, they were to do something extra. They were to read the Word of God every day of it. And so, verse 18, they did that. Day after day from the first to the last, as were read from the book of the law of God, they celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, there was an assembly. Here's what they did. They read this book. They found out stuff they were supposed to do. And you know what they did? They just did it. They just did what the Bible said they ought to do. How about that? Why don't, why don't we try that? Experience renewal in your life. I want you to think about, is there anything that the Bible says not to do that you're doing? You say, well, I'm new, I don't know all the Bible. Okay, just go with what part you know. You say, well, I don't understand it all. You just work on what you do understand. Is there anything the Bible says not to do that you're doing? Quit doing that. Is there anything the Bible says of what you know of it that you're supposed to do that you're not doing? Start doing that. That's what this says. They obeyed it promptly. And I wonder now, as we seek to renew our life, is there anything in your life that's not in line with this book as a follower of Christ? Would you bring your life in line with this book? They obeyed the word promptly. Are those responses true in your life? Are you hearing it eagerly, receiving it joyfully, obeying it promptly? I want to tell you a story to close. You know, we've had a lot of floods lately. Uh, Irma and Harvey have been terrible. 
And it brought to my mind a much smaller flood event that I was a part of 25 years ago. Cindy comes from a little, my wife Cindy grew up in a little town of McCaysville, Georgia, Copper Hill, Tennessee. And there's a First Baptist Church of McCaysville, Georgia, Copper Hill, Tennessee. I don't know, that's, that's just the way it is. Two towns, one church. It sits on the bank of the Tekoa River, which when it, trans, when it goes from Georgia to Tennessee becomes the Okoy don't know another river that changes name when it changes states, but it does. So it sits there on the bank of the Tekoa River, and 25 years ago, the river flooded. The town was completely flooded. First Baptist Church, five feet of water in all of the first story. So everything in the worship center, all the pews, you know, flood water is nasty. It's dirty. It's swept over all that garbage and muck. And so there's, there's dirty water five feet deep everywhere, all the sound system ruined, piano ruined, the keys would had swollen, you couldn't even try to, we went there for a mission trip to help them in the flood recovery, and you couldn't push down the keys, and all the pianos were swollen, uh, the offices were all ruined, the library, they had a library, and interestingly, in the library, had those wooden shelves, you know, on pins, that sat on pins, like a lot of libraries have, so the floodwaters came, and the books the pages would swell up when they got wet and they forced themselves against the sides of the thing. When the water went down, the shelves all washed away and it just left rows and rows of books with no shelves under them, just packed in there. You couldn't pull a, a book out of those shelves, all ruined. We carried them all out and threw them all away, all the pastor stuff, all of the pews, everything, thrown everything covered in muck and mire except one thing. There was a wooden table in front of the church with an open copy of the Bible, big pulpit Bible on it. And when the water rose, that wooden table floated and carried the Bible up above the flood water. And it floated around, and then when the water receded, the table went down. And so you walked into that worship center, and everything was brown and muddy and ruined, and there sitting at the front, was a clean, white, crisp, unstained copy of the Word of God. And it was just sort of a parable to me that all in this world is going to vanish. Heaven and earth will disappear. But rising above the flood tides of all the muck and mire of our world, the Word of God will endure forever, unstained unspoiled. Jesus says these words will never pass away. You want to anchor your life to something that will always exist. It is the Word of God. And critics have said, predicted its demise and rising above all of the criticism and all the statements of its untruth, the Word of God lasts forever. If we will rebuild our nation if you will rebuild your life, if we will know renewal, it will come when we eagerly hear and joyfully receive and promptly obey the enduring Word of God. Could we act it out just one more time? Would you join me and remain standing this time? This is the Word of God. May God be praised. Amen, indeed. Well, remain standing, and we're going to sing a song of commitment. And I want to invite you, 
If you will believe that message that this book contains, God's word to us says that he loved us so much he sent his son who died and rose again to take the punishment for our sins and to defeat death that if we would believe in him, we would be new people, our sins forgiven, our destiny heaven, shielded by God's power until that time, he in control of our lives. Would you believe and receive that and embrace that, that your life could be changed? If so, I want to invite you to walk forward while we sing to make your commitment to Christ. Or maybe you need to join a church. You need to be a part of community. We're going to try to rebuild a community. And it's assembling. Maybe you need to join our church today. We'd welcome you into this fellowship that you could connect to this body. God speaks to your heart. You feel free to come as we sing.